From our nation's capital, this is Naps Chat. I'm gonna stand right down and write myself a letter And make believe it came from you Hi, and welcome to this week's episode of Naps Chat. I'm Bob Levy, the Director of Legislative and Political Affairs for the National Association of Postal Supervisors. Although most of Washington has been fixated on the congressional insurrection hearings, the Supreme Court decision on abortion, persistent gun violence, historic levels of inflation, and the continued Russian invasion of Ukraine, NAPS has remained focused on those issues that directly impact the Postal Service and its supervisors, managers, and postmasters. On July 15th, NAPS Arizona Vice President and Chairman of NAPS's Postmasters Committee, Jimmy Salmon, testified before the Senate Subcommittee on Government Operations and Border Security. The authors of H.R. 82, legislation to repeal the government pension offset and windfall elimination provision, surpassed the 290 co-sponsor threshold, meaning that Rodney Davis, the author of the bill, could file a petition to place the bill on the so-called consent calendar. In addition, Susan Collins and Joe Manchin introduced bipartisan election security legislation that includes provisions improving the way in which vote-by-mail is conducted. And finally, NAPS participated in an advocacy day on behalf of the USPS Shipping Equity Act, which would permit the Postal Service to ship wine and spirits through the United States mail. With me today to talk about NAPS's work to promote these matters and other issues of concern to NAPS is NAPS's Executive Vice President, Chuck Mullador. Welcome back to NAPS Chat, Chuck. Thank you, Bob. It's always great to join you on NAPS Chat. Chuck, last week, Jimmy Salmon offered testimony on behalf of NAPS about the necessity of rapidly deploying the next generation postal vehicles. Postal supervisors, managers, and postmasters rely on vehicle reliability and resilience to effectively deliver letters and parcels. How do you view the importance of a new fleet of postal vehicles? Well, first of all, I want to thank Jimmy for uh, testifying, offering testimony up, and I know you worked with him, Bob, on, uh, on that. I thought it was very important uh, what he said. I think it's important, and I think we're seeing more and more now that there's a need and an urgency to get these vehicles deployed. I mean, we've known that in the field for a long time, right, that the fleet of LLVs had long outlived its usefulness. So I think now with the postal legislation, H.R. 3076, that freed up a lot of money for the Postal Service, quite frankly, and the legislation's had a positive impact on it. So I think we're seeing now an urgency in getting these vehicles, whether they're the next generation fleet or off-the-shelf vehicles out into the field as quickly as possible. Jimmy, when he spoke to the uh, subcommittee, he honed in on protecting employee health and safety as a key element in rapid deployment, particularly related to temperature extremes. Mm -hmm. Could you talk about climate control and other safety features on these ordered vehicles? Well, from Jimmy's perspective in Arizona, obviously climate is an important issue when you're driving and delivering mail and vehicles that are, the temperature outside can be approaching 115, 120 degrees, but it's not just in Arizona. Right now, what you're seeing at this time is a record heat wave across much of the country. Whether it's climate change or whatever you want to call it, there's record levels of heat 
So we have supervisors, managers, postmasters out observing carriers in vehicles. We have carriers delivering mail in vehicles. And just the fleet itself is antiquated where there's no climate control. So I think what Jimmy's testimony was was crucial, that these vehicles must have climate control in them, air conditioning to be specific, must have air conditioning to make them safe and to make them worthy of having for the next 20 or 30 years as we see the climate beginning to get warmer and some of these more extreme climate conditions going on. So I think it's absolutely critical what Jimmy testified about that we have climate control air conditioning in these vehicles as they deploy across the country. Another aspect of Jimmy's testimony was just managers' interest in protecting the health and welfare of postal employees separate and apart from climate control within Mm -hmm. the vehicle. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, one of our most important functions as managers is to ensure the health and safety of our employees. That's one of the most critical things we do every day in workroom floors across the country. We're charged with ensuring that our employees have a safe working environment, that they come to work, and that they go home the same way they came there, safe and healthy and well. So you can't really talk about safety as postal managers if we're putting our employees into situations where they may not be safe delivering mail due to the fact that the temperature extremes have become so strong over the last few years and it looks like we'll continue into the into the future so for us as managers supervisors postmasters it's imperative that we have our employees riding in vehicles that are safe and look we have managers and supervisors postmasters out observing carriers out doing things on the street and they need to be in climate-controlled, air-conditioned vehicles as well so they can perform the duties that they have as well. You mentioned about the climatic conditions across the country right now, and I know a lot of environmental groups and the White House is very concerned about rapid deployment, not only of new next-generation postal vehicles, Mm -hmm. but that these vehicles be powered by electricity, not necessarily combustion. There was an article in July, the July 21st issue of the Washington Post, as well as in Government Executive, suggesting that the Postal Service has decided to expand the deployment of electronic vehicles to at least 40% of its projected fleet. Right. This is a fourfold increase from the initial projection of 10% that we were talking about around a year ago. Assuming this, these stories are accurate. What does this say about the influence that climatic change, the White House and Congress has on the purchasing and the deployment of zero emission postal vehicles? Right. If you recall, when we were pushing for H.R. 3076, we had a companion bill, H.R. 3077. And one of the key provisions of that was that to expand the fleet of electric vehicles, right? And while that bill has never really come forward, uh, that those provisions about electrifying the fleet have been kind of made true. So uh, the administration has been pushing hard to electrify the fleet. Originally, it was about a 10% buy was electric vehicles. Now it's over 40 to 50%. So I think it's having an impact. I think it's um, important. I saw, and you know, as, as supervisors who work in delivery, as you know, that most of the carrier routes would be well within the range of what an electric vehicle could drive every day. And I think I saw 
in the article, something like 90 plus percent of routes would qualify to have an electric vehicle and would not have a, an issue with it. So I think the 40 to 50 percent is good. I think there's an infrastructure that's important to that. Obviously, we have to have charging stations and the ability to have the, uh, the VMF, have the trained and qualified folks to work on these vehicles, the purchase of electric batteries and so forth. So there's more than just riding out a bunch of electric vehicles and parking them in parking lots, right? There's training on the vehicles. There's the infrastructure needed to, to house those vehicles and the infrastructure necessary to repair those vehicles. So there's a lot to it. So I think it's a good start, though, and I think the 40 to 50 percent is a great number. I think it'll get higher than that as some of the pressure from Congress and the administration continues to go on. So I think it's good. I think it's where it should be right now. I think the administration signaled it's not, they're not satisfied with that number yet, but uh, it's a good start, and I think it's just the beginning of more electric vehicles to come. In fact, when you met with the president back on April 6th with you and the rest of the resident officers at the bill signing ceremony, President Biden explicitly mentioned his views with regard to the deployment yes, of he electronic did. vehicles yes, he did. in yep. the Postal Service. Yep. So. Yes, he did. Let's move on to another major initiative that uh, NAPS has undertaken, and that is in coordination with other postal employee groups as well as the wine and spirits industry. We participated in a lobbying advocacy day on behalf of HR 3287 and S1623, the Postal Service Shipping Equity Act. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, we've been in favor of that. The Postal Service has, I think, uh, not necessarily that numbered piece of legislation, but that the idea that the Postal Service should be delivering spirits, wine, beer, and other uh, liquors through the mail. I mean, why, why don't we? Why have we given that, or why is that allowed to be the sole province of, of UPS and, and others? We can do it better, and I think that's what, that's what the fear is among some of these private companies, right? They know that we can do it better than they can. We go to every home every day, every business every day. So I think that's what the pushback is from these other lobbying groups. If we get involved in that, we'll just outshine them, which we know we will. So we need to get on it and start pushing it, and we put something out about it uh, the other day, and we need people to get involved in that. So that's going to be a focus as far as moving forward. That's a great revenue piece for the Postal Service. It's good business for the Postal Service, and if it's good business for the Postal Service, it's good volume and good revenue, and that keeps the Postal Service thriving, and that's what we're all about. That's what we want to do. Yeah, there was some misinformation that is being uh so circulated by those opposing sure the legislation, and that is that under the bill, the Postal Service would not have to comply with state regulations. Right. That's absolutely incorrect. That's true, right. And that's always the case, right? And, and, and when we had pushback from UPS on H.R. 3076, it was because, oh, that was unfair uh, advantage uh, against them. It, it's always some made-up story that isn't true. And what we have to do is cut through that clutter and, and message out the facts and the reality. We'll do that up here with our legislators on the Hill. We'll do that. We need people to do that in their meetings uh, over the summer into the fall when these congressmen and senators are at home to make sure that that, that messaging, that's, that's not true, that we overcome that. And we'll, we'll work on that. And I think it's, it's something that we can do. We can do it. It won't be easy. There's a lot of opposition to it, but we can do it. 
And I think we just need to get started on it now, and we'll keep pushing it this year and into next year as necessary. Let's move on to two about 40-year-old provisions in the Social Security law that penalizes, among others, a meaningful number of civil service retirement system annuitants. The windfall elimination provision, which is around 40 years old, offsets a portion of earned Social Security benefits by the amount they are entitled to under the civil service retirement system, and the government pension offset reduces the Social Security spousal survivor's benefit for those entitled to a civil service retirement system pension. What do you think about the bills potentially coming to the floor later this year? Right. So if you've been coming to LTS for any number of years now, you know that every year we took this WEP GPO issue to Congress, right? We would have hundreds of co-sponsors, and everybody was for it, and it never got to a vote in a committee or on the floor. So right now, it might be an idea whose time has come. Not saying that it will pass, but I think there's movement now on it because of the fact that it can get on the consent calendar, which means that it's going to have to get scheduled for some type of of vote. As you know, and you've educated me on it, Bob, when it hits the consent calendar, it's got 25 legislative days. And we know that work days for Congress are not like work days for everybody out here listening to this podcast, right? No, it is Legislative work days aren't regular work days. So 25 legislative work days, believe it or not, takes us to November the 18th after the midterm elections. So there's a chance after the midterms, maybe even to the lame duck session that'll come later on, that it could come to the floor for a vote. Now, it's an expensive proposition. That's what always is the the argument against it, right? Well, it's going to cost a lot of money. But I look at it this way. What does it cost all of those folks who are entitled to these benefits but have been denied them because of this legislation that's been around for 40-plus years? So it's time for it to go. It's another heavy lift. So it's gotten further now than I think we've seen it in a long time. So is it going to happen? Maybe. We'll be there pushing it. We'll hope on the 25th legislative day we'll be arguing for its passage, and then we'll see what happens. But I'm glad to see that there seems to be some movement toward actually getting this done. So it's, you know, the postal bill took us 16 years, right, to get done. This may take, you know, a few more years. Who knows? But right now we seem to be on the right track, and and certainly we support it. Yeah, Rodney Davis, the author of the legislation, who unfortunately lost in his primary uh, not long ago, filed the petition on July 15th. So the clock starts on July 15th mm-hmm. for the 20, when we talk about the, the number of legislative days. And as you pointed out, mm-hmm. these work days for Congress does mm-hmm. not reflect the work days for Bob and Chuck or any person who's listening on this uh, right. podcast who's still an active employee of the United States Postal Service. But that puts us to the 18th of November, which mm-hmm. is the date on which the Speaker of the House would have to put the bill on the calendar. Mm-hmm. And they likely have to, with 292 co-sponsors currently, right. uh, it's going to be tough holding it up, you know, any further than that. But then it has to get over to the Senate also. Right. And it tells you with those number of co-sponsors, it's bipartisan. 
So it isn't just a Democratic bill. It's got bipartisan support, So, uh, which gives me hope that it can pass, that it will pass, and that it might actually have a little some legs when it gets to the Senate, but we'll see. Yeah, Chuck, I mentioned in my introduction that Senator Susan Collins and Senator Joe Manchin just <clears throat> introduced the legislation. I believe it was introduced on the 20th of the month, 20th of July, uh, the legislation named the Enhanced Election Security and Protection Act, S-4574. The measure carries the names of 12 senators, seven Democrats, and five Republicans. Hearing be- hearings before the Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee are expected. Bipartisan, A bipartisan election bill in an election year. <laughs> Novel idea, Chuck? <laughs> well, I think... For most of the republic, dating back to the adoption of the Constitution, we would say, isn't that what we always do? But I think now maybe we have to say it isn't. So we have some bills now that have been introduced to, uh, to clean up uh, election security, make elections more bipartisan, and also to clean up uh, the Electoral College Act. So... There's a lot of movement on that. Certainly, our organization uh, supports a f- free and fair and bipartisan elections. So, yeah, I'd like to identify the postal provisions in this legislation introduced by Senators Collins and Manchin, and they because they're going to be of interest to our members to and to all p- employees of the Postal Service, yes. particularly folks in the EAS. For example, the Postal Service will be directed to issue best practice guidelines to the election authorities more than a year before the federal elections. And that would include basically advising these election authorities when they need to send the ballots out in the mail, when the, how quickly they can get the ballots back from the voters to the election authorities, to designate the formatting and design of envelopes and identifying information. These are all things that are going to help the Postal Service process and accept and actually deliver ballots, no? Right, and we always talk about uh, the importance of allowing absentee balloting and mail-in balloting uh, to the importance, to the purpose of the Postal Service as well as the importance of the Republic. So we talk a lot about it. 2020, we delivered hundreds of millions of absentee ballots across the primary season, the general election season, in a pandemic in a pandemic, we did that successfully. So it says to me and to you and to the American public that we can do this, and we should be doing this. It's good business for the post office. It's good for the country. So anything that enhances the ability of us to process and deliver mail-in voting or absentee voting is absolutely critical. In part, we're also going to be involved in the designation of planned postal officials to ensure and to coordinate mm-hmm. with a with one or more postal mail advisors in each state that would be designated by the Postal Service. And as was the past, as what happened in 2020, NAPS was very involved in uh, sort of participating in these yep. types of meetings in ensuring that the elections go smoothly. Uh, there will be requirements. There is not a postmark requirement right now in a lot of states, uh, and that caused a problem, I think, up in yes. New York, it, particularly. So now this legislation says that every 
ballot needs to be postmarked in, all, in order to validate when it was put into the mail stream. Yeah, because we have a variety of state laws that some say it's received by a certain day, it's postmarked if it has a postmark on it by a certain day. So it would clarify whatever those laws are. If you saw a postmark on it by a certain day, maybe their law says within 10 days of the postmark it has to be received or something to that effect. But I think that postmark, uh, it's quite surprising for all of us who worked in the post office or work in the post office and see postmarks on letters all the time that these ballots would not have, as critical as they are, would not have a postmark on I, I mean, you know, for acceptance of your tax form, <laughs> you know, you require a yes, postmark because it was filed by right. the 15th of April. Right. So uh, this, is, this shouldn't be a shock to anyone. No. Also, one of the debates or the discussions that occurred back into 2020 was proposed service standard changes leading up to the election. This legislation that has been introduced would preclude the Postal Service from changing the service standards within 90 days of an election or implement any changes that would slow down the mail uh, in close proximity to election. This should reassure folks that nobody's right. gaming the system. And it's good because we've seen lately in the last year or so some significant service standard changes, right? So, and they happen probably quicker than we're used to, uh, those of us who are veterans of the Postal Service. So I think it's good that you have that stability before an election, so no one can come back and say, well, we changed the service standards midway. So that, that's all taken out of the picture, too. So, so we'll be looking at the, how this bill moves forward mm -hmm. between now and the end of this session. Yep. Sticking with the election topic, uh, we, you and I have been meeting with a large number of House and Senate candidates yes, we who have. will seek election in November. What are we talking with them about? Well, there's an abnormally large, I would say, group of candidates running that we don't know anything about. They're running for seats that are being uh, vacated by incumbents. They're not seeking a re-election, House and Senate. So we've got to find out what these people think about NAPS and the Postal Service. So when we meet with them, we tell them who we are and what we do as a NAPS organization and polit politically what our goals are. And then we just tell them, look, we don't really ask you about whether you're a Democrat or you're a Republican or how you feel about this issue or that issue. What we want to know, because that's how our SPAC, our political action committee, is structured, we want to know how you feel about NAPS issues and the Postal Service issues. And that's where we keep it. And we stress that to them, and then we get their feedback. So we've met with a lot of candidates, and we'll have a lot more coming up. And we're going to, to find out if they become elected, if they become members of the House or the Senate, will they support the issues that are important to us, H.R. 1623 right now, H.R. 1624. The issues we mentioned here on WebGPO, on the um, shipping of spirits and alcohol through the mail, those types of issues, election security, do they support the issues that we support, and do they support the Postal Service? That's important, because we do. That's why we're up there uh, advocating on behalf of the Postal Service in many cases. So that's what we stress to them. Uh, we lay it on the line. Look, as we've talked about, Bob, many times, it's all about... They want money to campaign. They need money to win. They need money to get reelected. And they're meeting with us because they want us to help their campaigns financially. And we want to help those people financially that are, that are going to help us 
and help the Postal Service. So when we meet with them, it's pretty well laid out for them. Look, here's our issues. Here's how we feel. And you give them a questionnaire that they're required to fill out. Most do that, that seek our help. And it lays it out for them. Uh, how we feel, and, and, and we get their views on these variety of issues. And that's what we're going to base our decisions on as we move forward in the next few months towards the midterms, is how do these folks feel about the Postal Service and how do they feel about NAP's issues? Also, we look at candidate viability, that do they have a shot at winning that right. district? Well, that's, and that's, that's important. A, that's an analysis right. also that is not really covered on the questionnaire, but, right. we, but we rely on data from, for example, we have a contract with a expert operation that actually evaluates mm-hmm. congressional districts. So folks should know listening that uh, we don't make, the, we don't know every, all 435 congressional right. districts in the United States and what uh, the probability of a challenger beating an incumbent or if you have an open seat in a highly partisan district we rely on a lot of data that comes into us, and we sit down and we look at that data. Yeah, and, and we know, we've, we've talked to some folks, and we've sat back and said, you know, they're trailing by 20 points in the district. It's, it's, a, it's, it, it's a district that's been uh, in control of one party or another for generations. Is it likely that they're going to win? And, and uh, we're not just going to throw good money after bad. So, yeah, there is an evaluation on that, too. Last question, Chuck. Mm-hmm. A couple of weeks, we're going to convention. Yes. In New Orleans, Louisiana. Yep. What message will you be conveying to our NAPS delegates at that convention? Well, first of all, I'm excited about it. About two and a half weeks away now, I know a lot of people that listen to the podcast will be there in New Orleans. Um, Much of the final preparations are underway now for the convention. I do want to say that our president, Ivan Butts, has done an amazing job in getting uh, everything ready for the convention. So I think folks are going to have a good time. I hear that they like to have a good time in New Orleans. People like to have fun in New Orleans. I've heard that. You have. I've heard, I've heard that. <laughs> so I think we'll have some fun down there. But, you know, it's all about business, too. So we'll be in business um, uh, Monday, Tuesday, uh, Thursday, and Friday. You know, Wednesday's the day off to enjoy the city. We'll have a lot of business transacted down there. But I think the message is going to be that Look, NAPS is at a point right now where we may not have been in a long time. NAPS matters again. NAPS, we won our lawsuit against the Postal Service on a lot of the issues of representation and pay and so forth. We're the one management organization that represents every EAS in the Postal Service, whether you're a postmaster, you're a supervisor in customer service or the plant, or you're an HR specialist, or you work in safety, whatever you do, over 500 different EAS designations, we represent them all, all of them. So I think the message is going to be, look, it's a great time to be a member of NAPS. It's a great time for NAPS. We're going to celebrate that. We're going to lay out the um, vision of the organization for the next two years at least, and I think people will all get behind that and – we're going to show who we are over the next couple of years and what we're all about, and I'm looking forward to it, and I can't wait for it to get started, and I'm very excited about it. On that positive note, I want to thank Chuck Molidor for joining Absolutely. us today. Thank you very much, Bob. Also, I want to thank NAPS Chat listeners for logging on this week. If you enjoy NAPS Chat, please leave a positive review in the Apple Podcast Store, and more importantly, share NAPS Chat with your friends and colleagues. In the meantime, stay safe and stay healthy. I'm going to send right
and make believe it came from you. I'm gonna. 